0: Friends, if you have a Bible, please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Even as we have sung those words of assurance that Jesus is our Savior, let's now submit ourselves to the authority of His Word. This morning we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Listen carefully now to the Word of God. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a joy it is to hear those words. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that your word would wash over our minds. Lord, we confess that we feel the pull of the world every day. We feel the pull to think and to act like pagans, like those who do not know God. And so we pray, Father, fill us now with Your Spirit. Forgive us, cleanse us by the blood, and renew our minds so that we would think clearly and judge all things with the mind of Christ. Remind us of our glorious hope. Remind us that our hope is in Jesus. Remind us of this truth so that we might live by faith and serve one another in love and wisdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Friends, have you noticed how fashion trends work? Fashion styles are a great example of cultural thought processes. So, think about it. Someone designs a certain type of clothing. Then they get a few people to, to model those clothes. Companies then promote and sell them. Uh, people get a little nervous at first, but slowly it starts to grow on them. Eventually, a style becomes popular. Soon, peer pressure kicks in, and one day, lo and behold, suddenly you are wearing bell bottom pants or a dress that looks like it was made from an old blanket. Soon you feel compelled to keep up with the the changing winds of fashion. You're captivated by them, and then you even start to judge your own wardrobe by those standards, by those trends. This is what happens if you allow yourself to become impressed with what the world is impressed with. Eventually, you will submit to the world's judgment. And this was what was going on at Corinth. Certain groups in the church were divided over their leaders based on what they thought was impressive about them. And what they thought was impressive was what Corinthian culture thought was impressive. So they valued what their culture valued. Corinthian culture uh, greatly esteemed flowery speeches and high social standing and, and reputation and wealth. And that's what the Corinthians used as a measure to determine which leader they would follow. This was a godless way of evaluating their leaders because they had neglected what God's Word said about Christian leadership. And because they did that, they ended up with some very bad leaders, some very arrogant leaders, and there was disunity in the church. And the congregation eventually began to tolerate sin. Things got so bad that eventually, people began to take their problems to the world. They took, started to take their problems to the world to sort them out. And when members in the church at Corinth began to have problems with one another, they began to file lawsuits against each other in secular courts. And Paul hears about this, and he is appalled. Now, if you remember, in chapter 5... He tells the Corinthians to excommunicate the unrepentant member, not based on the world standards, but on the authority of the apostolic word. And so Paul renders his judgment, and he tells the congregation to follow through in removing this man from the church. This is how Christians, who are trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, ought to judge matters. In this case of unrepentant sexual sin, the congregation was to discipline this man so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. But they were also to render this judgment for the sake of protecting the holiness of the church. Those who are citizens of God's kingdom celebrate holiness and mourn over sin. And they do that by the power of the Holy Spirit who applies the saving and sanctifying work of Christ to our lives. And so holy living requires us to do, to do this sort of judging. It requires us to be discerning, to judge well, to judge with the eyes of faith, to look at everything with the lens of Scripture. And so to engage in this sort of judging or judgment, we must know what sin is. We must know what unrepentant sin is. We must know what pride is, what humble submission to the Word looks like. And we must also remember that obedience to God's wisdom in His Word will look foolish to the world. It won't look impressive. But as you trust and obey God, God will act in power to sanctify those who trust in His Word, those who have received the Holy Spirit, can understand the words of the Spirit. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And those who receive the Spirit and understand the words of the Spirit ought to judge all things by the Spirit's words. Paul tells us not to go beyond what is written. The church is to judge the lives of its members for the sake of their witness to the perishing world. But something else was going on at Corinth. Because of their dependence because of their reliance on their cultural values, these Corinthians had become incompetent in matters of this kind of judgment. They had become incompetent in spiritual discernment. Instead of making judgments in light of God's wisdom as revealed in the cross, they were now going to secular law code. They were going to those outside the church. And so what we have in this passage is Paul continuing to apply the truth of 1 Corinthians 5.12 to their particular situation. So he says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The church is to render righteous judgments among its members. Friends, this is how the king rules over the people of his kingdom. As his people, as his members look to his word to judge one another righteously. So that the body grows in holiness, in unity, and in love. And so here's what we can learn from this passage. The church will have its fair share of problems. That's a given. In any congregation, there's going to be conflict. But when we look to the world for solutions, when we go to the world for solutions, that demonstrates four things. Number one, it demonstrates contempt for the church. It demonstrates contempt for the church. Number two, it shows that we have forgotten who we are. It shows that we have forgotten who we are. Number three, it shows that we are captivated by the world. That we are captivated by the world. And number four, it also shows that we may be deceived. That we may be deceived. So when you go to the world for solutions... Number one, according to Paul, according to the Holy Spirit, that demonstrates contempt for the church, for the saints. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This is shocking to Paul. And it seems like this was something that the members of the church regularly did. When one of you has a grievance, in other words, this is what usually happens. When one of you has a grievance, that word grievance is a a technical term, which means lawsuit or legal dispute. And Paul says, how dare you go to the law before the unrighteous? It's an interesting word. That word means wrongdoer or unjust. And of course here he's referring to unbelievers. How dare you go to the law before unbelievers instead of the saints? What's shocking to Paul is not that they had problems. What's shocking to him is that they went to unbelievers to sort out their problems. This was a brazen disregard for the saints, for the body of Christ. And Paul will not have it. To have a low view of the local church is to have a low view of what Christ has accomplished. This is His body. Friends, through the cross, God has judged the wisdom of the world and He has saved us. By grace, we have been united to Christ Himself by the power of His Spirit through faith. Divine wisdom has been revealed to us through the gospel and it is a wisdom that the unbelieving world cannot see or know. The secrets of the kingdom have been revealed to the saints. But a fearful judgment awaits those who do not trust in Christ, awaits those who are on the outside. Brothers and sisters, the saints have been given God's wisdom in His Word. We have the Spirit. We can understand the mind of Christ in the Scriptures. Christ himself is our wisdom. And Paul says, I cannot believe that in order to judge between two Christians, you would leave all of that and go to unbelievers. You know, today, we may not go around suing one another in secular courts. But there are often times that we would lean on unbelievers for wisdom. And brothers, that's a terrible thing. If you have marriage problems, don't go to a secular psychologist to sort out those problems. If you have interrelational conflict, don't go to a secular psychologist. They don't understand sin. They don't understand what Christ has done. They might give you some behavioral therapy. They may prescribe a few lifestyle changes but they don't know what the solution for sin is. And sin is at the heart of all our problems. So what's your first impulse when you have conflict with other believers? Do you call up your unbelieving family and ask them for advice? Or do you go to another brother or sister? You know, there's probably a reason why Paul uses this word unrighteous. How dare you go to the unrighteous? It was well known in Corinth that local judges would favor the rich and the powerful. And so you could buy justice at the right price. It's possible that some of the rich members at Corinth were taking some of the poor members to court knowing that they could get what they wanted in that sort of setting. The scales would tip in their favor. But all of this would be a poor witness to the unbelieving world. You know, in those days, they did not have nice-looking courthouses. No, these sort of trials would be held outdoors in public forums. Uh, Forums were public places where people would uh, conduct their business and handle judicial matters. And to see Christians behaving in such a way, fighting with one another, would only communicate to the world that these Christians are just like us. That's what the world would think. Look, they're greedy, just like us. They fight just like us. They will stoop to any level to get what they want, just like us. And Paul says, this not only demonstrates your contempt for the saints, but it shows that you have forgotten who you are. And this brings us to our second point. When we take our problems to the world... It shows that we have forgotten who we are. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul looks at what they were currently doing and then he reminds them what God had destined them to do as His blood-bought saints. Do you not know who you are? And friends, this ought to take us back to chapter 1, Verse 2, they are the church of God. They are sanctified. They are set apart from the world in Christ. They are saints. Beloved, our position and our identity in Christ has changed the trajectory of our lives. This reality that the saints will judge the unbelieving world comes from Daniel 7, verse 22. Paul quotes from the Septuagint. So, if you look at Daniel 7.22 in your Bibles, the the language might be slightly different. This is a vision that Daniel has about the last days, about how God's people will participate in judging the world. Daniel writes, the ancient of days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. You know, this, this idea is is further developed and confirmed in Matthew 19, when Jesus says to His disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Or Revelation 3:21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with Me on My throne, as I also conquered and sat down with My Father on His throne. Now, some of you might feel a bit uncomfortable with this idea. You might think, well, isn't this God's business? Yes, it is. The judgment of the unbelieving world is God's prerogative. We've heard that in 1 Corinthians 5.13. God judges those outside. So, you should not imagine a scene on the last day, where unbelievers are lining up to you personally and giving an account to you as an individual. No, because of our union with Christ, the church gets to participate in everything that Christ does. We have died with Him. We have been raised with Him. We are now seated with Him in the heavenly places, and one day we will rule with Him. The church has no business judging the world now. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 5.12, but we will in the future. And it's because of who we are in Christ, beloved. This is our destiny. This is our hope. We are an eschatological people. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, the powers of the age to come have entered into our present. Eternity has broken in to human history in the coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated in the first coming of Christ. It is already here. God's people have received new life in the Spirit. The kingdom is already here, but it is not, not yet, fully here. When Christ comes back, He will put all His enemies under His feet and He will establish His kingdom in glory. This is the church's future. This is what we have to look forward to as citizens of the kingdom. By the grace of God, we will inherit the kingdom. We will inherit the new earth. And Paul's argument is, if that is what you are going to do, if you are going to judge the world, why would you go to the world? Why would you go to the unrighteous even? This is completely backward, he says. But that's not all. He argues from the greater to the lesser. If the world is going to be judged by you, obviously by God's standards, Paul looks to the church and says, Are you saying you're unqualified? Are you incompetent to judge even small issues, trivial cases between brothers? If such a weighty responsibility awaits those who have been transformed by the gospel, how can God's people who have His Word demonstrate such incompetence? Friends, I hope you can see that this is a rebuke. You shouldn't be listening to this and thinking, Oh, those Corinthians, such terrible people. How could they not get this? No, this is a rebuke for us. This is a divine rebuke to our pride. It is a rebuke to our incompetence. Friends, you need to be thinking, I need to stop making excuses. And if I haven't been exercising this kind of biblical discernment to help others in the church, To help others see their sin and selfishness. To counsel them with Scripture. To help them repent and reconcile. To be what God is calling me to be. If that's not what you're doing currently, then you need to repent. Paul says this is spiritual incompetence. Grow up. Beloved, are you preparing for that weighty responsibility? Are you preparing for glory? Have you set your minds on things above? You know, every conflict in the congregation is a God sent opportunity for you and I to judge wisely, to be a peacemaker to glorify Christ, to build up the body. Oh, it's so hard. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like conflict. There's so much of pain. I didn't know you believed in the prosperity gospel. Isn't that what you're asking for? Suffering-free obedience? Prepare for glory. The fact that he describes these cases as, as trivial or of little importance tells you that these Corinthians may have been running to the secular courts for every little offense. And Paul corrects their behavior With eschatology. Brothers, this is why theology matters. Doctrine matters. Doctrine is for life. God's wisdom in His Word is given to us for sanctifying our sinful hearts. For putting to death all those vain things in the world that charm us the most. The gospel is for our holiness so that we might remember who we are in Christ and judge righteously. And this is why Paul uses that phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? Saints, do you not know? But that's not all. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Again, arguing from the greater to the lesser, Paul says, Believers will judge fallen angels. Now, this is a whole another level of judging, isn't it? Angels are not humans. Now we're talking about beings of a different nature altogether. And yet, in Christ, we will judge them. It's astounding. Jude 6 tells us that God has kept fallen angels in eternal chains till that day of judgment. Friends, I want you to see how precious the church is to Christ and how glorious the church is in God's plan of redemption. Again, we know from one John three eight that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. He fulfilled that promise that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis three fifteen. He is the one who bruised Satan's head on the cross, and it is under his feet that Satan will be crushed once for all when he returns. And yet Paul says this to the Romans. So open your Bibles to Romans 16, verse 20. Romans 16, verse 20, and see this for yourself. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. Your feet. He says this to the Romans so that they would hold on to the gospel and continue in the obedience of faith. If you are to judge angels, says Paul, think about it. These are matters of cosmic significance. They will be judged by God's word. Then how much more should you be giving yourself to judge everyday matters? To judge between believers in the church with the wisdom that God has revealed to you in the gospel. Here's what we can learn from this line of argument. What will happen in the future ought to inform how we live in the present. What will happen in the future ought to inform how we live in the present. You're going to do this. Therefore, shouldn't you be doing this now? And friends, both those things are only possible Because of the cross. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we have been justified by God. We have not earned this standing. We have not labored to make our mark. We have not arrived at our identity by self-discovery. Nor do we have claims of moral superiority. No, God has saved us by His grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice has secured our forgiveness and His resurrection has secured our new life and justification. He has claimed us for His own. We belong to our Savior. God has saved us by His grace through faith in Christ. Our identity, who we are, only matters because of who we belong to. And this truth... This gospel ought to empower our spiritual lives as we strive to address our relational sins and disunity. Judge them well and make peace. Trusting in the gospel empowers our sanctification, unless, unless, we're trusting in something else. Trusting in the gospel empowers our sanctification unless we are trusting in something else. And that brings us to our third point. If we're looking to the world for solutions, it shows that we are captivated with the world. Taking our disputes to unbelievers only demonstrates that we have been captivated with the values of culture and we are not trusting in the wisdom of the cross. Look at verses 4 to 6. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now that's a strong word, no standing. It means utterly rejected. And what Paul is getting at here is that the church of Jesus Christ ought to rightly reject the values and the standards of the world. Well, we reject them because God has rejected them and has judged them, those standards. They are foolish in His sight. And therefore, they cannot serve the church as a means to judge and solve our problems. We know this. What God says is sinful may not be illegal in a court of law. We know this. Abortion and fornication are examples of this. God says it's sinful, but in many places it's legal. Furthermore, what God says is righteous may often be illegal in a court of law, in a human court preaching Christ, disciplining your children, gathering together as a church. In many places, these would be illegal. When a Christian takes another Christian to unbelievers to sort out their disputes instead of having the saints judge them and pursue peace and reconciliation, Paul says, that's shameful. I say this, To your shame, and that means it's downright wrong. They are sinning. They ought to feel a sense of shame. In chapter 4, verse 14, after pointing out the irony of their criteria, if they employed their criteria, it would be ironic that even the apostles of Christ would not measure up. Remember that in chapter 4, verse 14. There he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but I exhort you as a father. Here he says, okay, now you should be ashamed. This is shameful behavior. Now remember that these Corinthians were boasting in their leaders based on their worldly assessments. And Paul indicts them in that chapter, chapter 4, saying that you think you're wise? You think you're strong? And here, they are running to unbelievers to sit in judgment over them. And so Paul looks at them and he says very sarcastically, What happened to your wisdom? Look at the text. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers? Now friends, we don't know what these issues were. Many scholars speculate about them. Perhaps these were disputes over property or theft. Whatever they were, they seem to be trivial everyday matters, at least in Paul's assessment. Now, you should not read this passage and think that a Christian should never go to a law court to settle an issue. That's not what this passage is teaching. If your company has not paid your salary for many months, and according to your contract and the law of the land, if they are obligated to do so, you are not sinning if you go to the civil courts and ask for justice. This is not talking about those kinds of situations. This is about solving disputes between believers in a local church. And Paul says, don't go to secular quotes. Taking those before unbelievers is shameful. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Don't you believe that God's Word has something to say about that? Hasn't the Lord Jesus told us what to do in Matthew 18 if a brother sins against another brother? Isn't there power in the Word to produce repentance and reconciliation when we submit to it? Or are you so enamored by the values of the culture, so starry-eyed, that you think that only the world can discern your situation wisely, and then render a verdict between brothers? What are you trusting in? What are you impressed with? What do your actions reveal about your heart? Is your faith resting in the wisdom of men? Or in the power of God? Look at verses 7 to 8. To have lawsuits at all with one with one another is already a defeat for you. Why does anyone go to court? To fight their case. To win. That's why you go to court. You go to win. And Paul says, forget about the outcome. The fact that you are doing this speaks poorly of you. You are already defeated, spiritually speaking. And then he says the most counter-cultural thing. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's asking them to give up their rights. So imagine if there were two members at the church. They're having a dispute. One brother has become convinced that he has been wronged by the actions of another. And he's furious. And so he decides, I know how to make this fellow pay. I'll make sure he knows what a mistake it was to cross my path. And so he decides to take him to court and sue him for every dirham. And Paul says instead of doing the shameful thing of dragging your brother before unbelievers, if you think he has swindled you, let it be. Absorb the damages. Has he cheated you? It's better to be defrauded than to drag a brother before unbelievers. Now friends, I want you to understand something. Paul is not saying it doesn't matter who sinned. No, this whole passage is about how the church must do the judging and do it well by the wisdom of God. It matters. It matters. Let me give you another example. I I want you to really wrap your head around this. Let's say one of you comes to me and says, Brother, I I need some money. Can you help me? And so I ask you, Well, what is it for? And you have a legitimate uh, need and so I give you the money, and you promise to return that money to me after a month. And so after a month, when I, when I ask you, you say, what money? And then I said, well, well, brother, you remember I, I gave you this money, and you said you'd give it to me after, after a month. And so according to Matthew 18, I go and get someone else and try and sort out the situation, address the sin. Address the sin of lying and greed and whatever else may be going on in that brother's heart. And sometimes we might have to move up, move through all the steps of of Matthew 18. It might even lead to church discipline if he is unrepentant. If he is repentant, what a joy if he is repentant. I have gained my brother. And, And part of repentance is reconciliation and restitution. If he's truly repentant, he'll pay me back the money because he knows that's the right thing to do, just like Zacchaeus knew it was the right thing to do. But if he's unrepentant, and let's say he's excommunicated, disciplined, I still haven't gotten my money. Two options. Either I can drag him to court and make sure I get my money back, Or for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I absorb those damages. Because it's it's not about winning. It's about loving this brother, judging well, addressing his sin. But here are these Corinthians, we're not thinking like that. Clearly, they were sinning and behaving as though they did not have the Spirit. You see that in the next verse. Instead of suffering wrong, they were doing wrong. Verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. What he's saying is this. Be willing to suffer loss for the sake of not tarnishing the witness of the church. What Paul's doing here is that he's bringing the wisdom of the cross To bear on this particular situation. God's wisdom, which looks absolutely foolish to the world, is brought to bear on this situation in order to expose something. To expose something. What should Christians do in the face of injustice? What is the wisdom of the cross when you are wronged? Listen to Matthew 5, 39-40. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You know, the backhanded slap in Near Eastern culture was considered an insult. This is an unfair and unkind action. And Jesus says, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Romans 12.21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Those who walk according to the wisdom of the cross will live like this when they are unfairly treated. This is how the apostles live. Chapter 4, verse 12, when, we, when reviled, we bless. And so in, in telling these Corinthians to, to suffer loss, to be defrauded, what Paul is doing is masterful. By laying upon them the demands of the cross, he is exposing their hearts. The true believer will be willing to submit to the wisdom of the cross and suffer loss for the sake of the name of Christ for the witness of the church. He would rather give up his rights instead of dragging a believer to court. The one who has the Spirit and is trusting in the cross will be empowered by the Spirit to be a fool for Christ's sake. You know, that's how God's wisdom works. You heard about it in our scripture reading from 1 Kings Chapter 3, you heard this afternoon how Solomon was able to judge a hard case with his God-given wisdom. Two mothers come before him. One claims, this is my child, the other one's dead. The other one says, no, this is my child, her child is the one who's dead. And do you remember how that story plays out? Solomon says, bring me a sword. The sword plays a very important part in that story, doesn't it? The very mention of the sword exposed who the real mother was. The true mother was the one who was willing to give up her child instead of seeing him killed. And, friends, in the same way, when God's demands are brought to bear upon a situation like this one in Corinth, it is the true believer who would be more concerned about the witness of the church than about winning. That's how the wisdom of God works, like Solomon's sword. But at Corinth, people seem to be bent on wronging one another instead of living like Christians. And so Paul warns them. He warns them if they continue like this, they might be deceived. And that brings us to our fourth point. We take our problems to the world. It might be that we are deceived. Look at the text. You yourself wrong your own brothers. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous... Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it might be helpful if you're using an ESV to look at your footnote for this word unrighteous. You can also translate that word as wrongdoers. So here's Paul's logic this is the logic of the warning. Verse 7 Why not suffer wrong? Verse 8, you yourselves wrong. Verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is unloving. 1 Corinthians thirteen six, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In other words, he says, if you continue to sin against one another and furthermore drag each other to court like this, let me warn you that such kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom. Every time you see the word inherit or inheritance, every time that word appears in the Old Testament, it's about the possession, the possession of the promised land. Paul says if you live like this, you won't enter the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. If you go on like this, you may not be a Christian. And Paul then goes to list a catalog of ten sins. Ten sins. And he says that if these sins characterize your life, you won't inherit the kingdom. Look at verses 9 to 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's definitely a list that would have gotten the attention of the Corinthians. These may have been the pervasive sins of their culture. Perhaps uh, some of their disputes would have, uh, might have involved some of these kinds of sins. You know, Paul has already mentioned in chapter 5, verse 10, he has already mentioned the sins of sexual immorality, porneia which is a broad term which includes every imaginable form of sexual sin from a lustful thought to fornication to prostitution, anything that is outside the holy covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. But here he specifically includes adulterers. When a married man or a married woman enters into a sexual relationship with someone other than their spouse, Was this one of those everyday matters? We don't know. Then he mentions the greedy idolaters, revilers, swindlers, and drunkards. He's already mentioned those. And here he also mentions thieves, those who steal and take what take uh, what does not rightfully belong to them. Now, I said ten sins, and you might have noticed there are only nine here. There's actually 10. And the reason I said 10 is because this phrase, men who practice homosexuality, is actually a translation of two Greek words, "malakoi," and arsenokhoitai. So neither this nor that. Now the first word, "malakoi," means soft. This refers to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Some older translations will say effeminate or catamite. The second word refers to the active partner in a homosexual relationship or sodomite. It's astounding how specific and clear the wisdom of God is concerning sexual sin. There is no confusion that those who continue in heterosexual sin or homosexual sin will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says this is unrighteousness. This is unrighteousness. God's people living under the new covenant cannot do wrong in these ways. But friends, here's the good news. Paul writes this warning to remind the Corinthians and to remind us why kingdom people cannot keep living unrighteously like this. Why we should do no wrong to our neighbor. Why we should be deeply concerned about the witness of the church before unbelievers. And why we ought to judge our disputes in the context of a local church under the authority of the wisdom of God's word. Here's the reason. Because the Corinthians had been changed by the gospel. They had been changed by the word of the cross. Look at the text. People like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Isn't that amazing? He says some of the members were living like this at one time. What changed? What changed that now qualifies them That makes them competent to judge and counsel one another when disputes arise. Answer, but you were washed. They were cleansed by the blood. They were forgiven of their sins. You were sanctified, set apart as holy in Christ and for Christ. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, all this talk... About lawsuits and courts. Here's the most important legal term you need to know. You were justified. You were declared righteous before the holy judge. Why? Because on that cross, Jesus died in our place and He was judged for our sins. He died so that His perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness could be credited to our account by faith. We changed clothes when we believed. His righteous robes for our dirty rags. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified, salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and I am now complete in thee. Friends, this is the glorious gospel of God. And if you don't have a relationship With Christ in such a way that His saving, transforming power is at work in your life, then repent of your sin and put your trust in Him. If you have ever avoided Christians, or if you have avoided coming to church because you thought, oh, these Christians, they think they're better than us, you're wrong. We don't think we're better. In fact, we know we are wicked. God tells us so in His Word. And that is why your only hope is to turn to Him. Without the death of Christ to pay for your sins and without the righteousness of Christ to give you a right standing before God, you have no hope. You can only expect God's wrath on the last day if you reject Christ. But in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So if you don't know Him, turn to Him. Beloved, we can judge righteously between believers because we have been justified before God. And what was the means by which this transformation came about? Look at the text. By the Spirit of our God. By the Spirit of our God. Friends, here's what we should take away from this those who are in Christ, whom He has declared as righteous, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of His Son. Those people will be transformed by the power of His Spirit. Those who are under the saving rule of Christ in His kingdom will know His kingdom power. Power to submit to the wisdom of the cross and live according to the way of the cross. Christians are not sinless, but we are repenting sinners. Justified sinners are repenting sinners. In Christ, we are His saints and we ought to live like saints, holding each other up to the standards of His Word and not the surrounding culture. And so, friends, in light of this, this text, here are three things that we should be compelled to do. Three things that we should be compelled to do. Number one, as a member Be eager to be involved in the lives of others. Be eager to help one another deal with conflict. Remember, as you put on the mind of Christ and help assess your brother's heart or your sister's heart, and as you help them see their sin, you are being a loving, holy, and unifying influence in this congregation. Members should be like first responders. Like first responders, this is your responsibility. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world and angels? Do you not know that? Number two, make sure you are doing all that you can to grow in discernment. And friends, that means you need to learn how to apply the gospel to everyday situations. Have conversations about these things regularly. Be wise and don't waste your time in meaningless talk. Discernment can be trained by regularly distinguishing between good and evil. That's what Hebrews 5.14 says. And for that, you must grow in your knowledge of the Word and sound doctrine. See, Solomon was wise because he sought God for wisdom. And so pray and ask God to give you a discerning mind a mind that is saturated with His Word, and then do the hard work of studying His Word, of studying what His Word says about Himself. Ask yourself, ask yourself, do I know what to do when a brother sins against me? Have I studied Matthew 18? Do I know what each step looks like? Do I know what true repentance and reconciliation looks like? Do I understand Galatians 6.1? Am I able to recognize when someone is caught up in sin? Do I know how to restore him in a spirit of gentleness? Beloved, study God's word. Watch other godly Christians as they exercise discernment and learn from them. Be devoted to the word. That is the only way you can judge wisely and be useful to anyone. Because it is His Word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. And it is His Word, like Solomon's sword, that is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the believer's heart. Number three, finally, remind yourself of the gospel every day. Remember what Christ has done for you and go to Him with your sins. Confess them to Him. Ask Him for His cleansing power and pray that you will learn to see more of your sin and walk in the Spirit in obedience to His wise word. And don't just stop there. Go and minister to other believers who are caught up in sin. And most importantly, be filled with hope. Be filled with hope. Meditate on the future glory of the church. And allow those truths to fuel your obedience today. Be willing to suffer wrong. Be willing to suffer loss. Knowing that you have Christ. And in Him, you have everything. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for our Savior. That in Him, we have all that we need And in His Word, You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Teach Your people to reject cultural wisdom, to reject worldly ambition, and to look to the wisdom of Your Word. O Lord, fill us with Your Spirit's power that we might glorify the name of Christ in the church and in the world. In His name we pray. Amen.